we had to do that ourselves. So the grocery store has really kind of knocked a lot of those breeds out because people don't have to raise those breeds anymore. Hey y'all, I'm Mel and you are listening to Wilma the Wonder Hen. Are you a chicken mouth loving mama or daddy? Together we'll dive into the latest poultry keeping adventures, chat about everyday life, with a generous mix of some hilarious stories. Bringing you fascinating interviews with poultry owners from all over. You'll find tips and basic advice from your local veterinarian, along with new chicken keeping gadgets and reviews. I'm going to see what Mr. Jangles and Wilma has to say about that. We're going to encourage and help you build a stronger, healthier flock. Let's go see what Mr. Jangles and Wilma is up to. Let's go let these heifers out. Hey y'all, welcome back. We are so excited to have you with us today. Today's guest is literally going to blow your mind. I am like a, a giddy 12-year-old schoolgirl with a crush. Today's guest is Marissa King. She is a veteran, a co-owner of King's Cox and the Mother Cluckers. She operates a small farm out of Sweetwater, Tennessee with her two daughters where she works with poultry, waterfowl, goats, and honeybees. She is a freelance writer for Community Chickens, Chickens Magazine, Grit Magazine, and has been featured with the Livestock Conservancy Annual Report for her work with the Heritage Breeds. Phew, that is a lot. <laughs> yes, it's a mouthful. Hi, Marissa. <laughs> hey, hon. How are you? We are so excited to have you with us. I am certain after reading your bio, which is quite remarkable... Thank you. That you were born with some type of animal in your hand. Is that not a fact? <laughs> Probably would be a fact, yes. <laughs> Raised on chickens, and it kind of uh, exploded from there. First of all, we want to say thank you for your service. We are very honored to have you. Thank you so much for having me. You are more than welcome. Okay, hey, hey, can you tell us... A little bit about Marissa. Tell us how all this came to be. So um, I grew up on a farm. I was very involved in chick chain. And once I got into high school, I got into FFA, started showing pigs. They didn't really have like, you know, poultry showing or stuff like that. Uh, joined the army, went off with the army for a little bit. When I came back home, uh, struggled with some mental health problems. And I thought chickens would help. And turns out they helped a lot. And then I had my first daughter, and at around four to six months old, uh, she she was a crazy chicken lady too. Had a little backyard flock, um, and it just kind of blossomed from there. It started getting involved with the livestock conservancy. Uh, started finding out about you know like the Aom Samani, uh, and the genetics aspect of it, and the genetic conservation aspect really kind of got my brain working, and it just kind of exploded <laughs> yeah you you have a an amazing setup where um you have done chicken therapy where you had access to people who could come and utilize that service you sell um hatching eggs you sell chicks is that yep. correct yes ma'am yes ma'am nationwide so when you began your chicken journey that you have right now, I know that you don't just have poultry. You have ducks and lots of other things. Can you tell us a little bit about the array of animals that you keep? 
Yeah, so when I first started out, uh, I had a few silkies, a few leg bars, um, and I had what they called ice bars. Uh, and then I got some Aeon Samanis, just some, just a weird little mixed flock. Built a barn, had a livestock rescue, and to kind of fund that livestock rescue, I was like, hey, I'm, I'm getting pretty good at, you know, this chicken breeding thing. Like, let's internally fund ourselves off the sale of the, the eggs and stuff. So we separated them all out. Um, Started, like, following the SOP from the American Poultry Association. Started really looking at conservancy efforts for which breeds brought those breeds in. Had a school contact us about bringing those animals out. And then we started having predator issues. So when we started having the predator issues, I brought the geese in. Yep. Uh, Mary, no, not Mary. Mink, Gus Gus, and Cinderella were my first three. Uh, they were all, I had two white Chinese geese, and then I had Mink, who's a brown Chinese. And they imprinted. They took to me really well. They were really sweet to me, not really to my partner at that time, but I loved them, absolutely adored them. Then I decided, you know, hey, well, we've got geese. Why don't I just go ahead and get ducks, too? Uh, so found the Cayuga duck through the Conservancy website, and I started working with them. And then we started having tick issues, so we had to get the guineas. <laughs> I love that you took and you integrated the animals that, that serve a purpose in each category, like with the ticks and the guineas and bringing them all together. That's, that's yep. very thoughtful. That's very well thought out. Could you elaborate a little bit on that? Like what would be something that someone else could, how could someone take what you have done and implement it into their flock? So like for, for tick stuff, the guineas are by far the best. They'll eat more way more ticks than your chickens will um the geese like if you have an orchard that needs weeded um or you even have a garden that needs weeded chinese geese are also known as weeder geese um and they'll weed that garden out i didn't know that that's a, that's very good thank you for sharing that yeah they'll weed that garden out um and they're really good at it too but they can cause some erosion issues so you have to have a backup plan for that <laughs> <laughs> my chickens are good at gardening. I, I just had to yeah. fence off my garden. <laughs> and then some people will, uh, like chicken tractors, they kind of fertilize the soil as they eat. And you can move it, you know, every so often. And like some of the most fertile soil on the land I'm on now is from where my mom's chicken pens were. And the grass is coming up so lush. And I'm like, yeah, you, sh you should have probably put chickens on the garden last year. So... Yeah, I do get quite a few comments like in my pictures and stuff. They're like, is that old, an old picture from last summer? And I'm like, no, that's this year. I have so much grass already. I'm having to mow it. It needs yep. to be mowed. But my chickens free range. So or pasture range, the majority of them are out all day and then they get safely locked up at night. And that is what sparked my interest on one of your articles. I know that uh, you have written an article in Community Chickens called Poultry Conservation and Genetic Diversity. And this was a very interesting read. Um, there's a lot of information. I will also link the show in the show notes. I'll link to that uh, website because I went to that website and they have a whole list of different uh, breeds that are on the warning list or the um, danger list. And it was very fascinating because I had some of these I had never even heard. You never even heard we, of them. Yeah. We stick to like what's on hatchery websites or, you yep. know, those are typically where most people 
go and get their chicks or a feed store. So can you talk a little bit about that? Bringing those breeds into our backyard, diversify our flocks and produce stronger, hardier breeds. Yes. So way back in the day, chickens, just like, you know, your seeds, um, families would work with breeds. They would work with seeds that were local to their area. And these backyard flocks were, they evolved in some sort of way uh, to, for that particular area. Um, like the Aeon Samani, they do best in the Indonesian environment. Hot, humid, sticky, wet, because that is their breed. But whereas you get a Rhode Island Red, they're going to do best in the States, probably around Pennsylvania area, because that's where they were made. Uh, so that's fascinating. Yeah, used to, breeders used to breed for hardy birds for their specific geographical location. Now with, you know, the internet, uh, shipping, rare breeds, you can get those breeds anywhere. And some of those breeds aren't going to do good. Uh, like the Silver Reds Blue, Winter, those guys can last all winter, no problem. But now summer, they are not heat hardy. So they have to have shade. They have to have a little kiddie pool to stand in. Uh, this is going to be really sad to say, but at our old place, they had an air conditioner just because they were, oh, goodness. yeah, they do not tolerate heat well. But when there was the big chicken boom in Georgia, I can't remember the specific year. Uh, it's when Cornish started coming out, the Cornish crosses. Um, she's called the mother of all modern poultry. That took a lot away because um, she came up with that and that made chickens used to back in the day. It took a lot longer to grow chickens. Mix of chicken was passed down from family to family and that erupted in a lot of your modern breeds. But hatcheries have diluted those genetics or a lot of those genetics have been lost. Um, like Buckeye. A lot of people haven't heard about Buckeyes, but they're a dual purpose breed um, and they're almost extinct. Uh, because, you know, people aren't butchering their own chickens. They're not raising their own chickens like we used to way back in the day. Used to, we couldn't go to a grocery store and say, hey, give me some chicken cutlets. We had to do that ourselves. So the grocery store has really kind of knocked a lot of those breeds out because people don't have to raise those breeds anymore. If you want eggs, you, yeah, you get, you go to the grocery store, you spend 99 cents, you buy eggs. You want chickens, you want uh, thighs, you want all that meat, you go to the grocery store, you spend $12, $15, you've got the chicken right there. There's no butchering process or anything like that. So a lot of those breeds that were meant for those purposes are being replaced with the Cornish Cross that, you know, Purdue, all those uh, chicken companies work with specifically because they grow so fast and their meat yield is so high. With that comes the problem of Seeking out those types of birds, most people go online or their local feed store, like we had discussed, and get their birds. Where are we going to point these people within their community when there is no breeders of these particular animals, these particular breeds? Where are we going to point them to at least bring in a few of those to diversify their flock? Where do we go? So like with the Crevacore, like the, they are in a program right now. I always point people to the Livestock Conservancy. They have a list of breeders there. I'm, I'm listed under the Cayuga Duck. Um, 
a lot of people are in the States or, you know, if it's a really uh, bad off breed, like the Livestock Conservancy has programs to get people those breeds and to work with those breeds like the Crevacore. Um, they actually just did a big, and I'm going to have to look up the information real quick, but um, this lady, she was having issues getting them imported from France because that seemed like the only place you could get them from was from France. Um, and the Livestock Conservancy backed her 100% getting those birds in. And they did it with sheep too. Um, I think it was a baby doll sheep. I'm not 100% on that. That was probably a couple years ago that they did that. But they started with uh, the Crevacore and then kind of moved on from there. But they have resources available to try and get these breeds out of extinction. Because uh, the genetic makeup of these breeds, um, it's it's irreplaceable. It really is irreplaceable. If we lose those genetics, we lose the breed. We lose everything positive that comes from that breed. Coco likes to sit. She sits like three or four times a year. Yeah. I don't buy live chicks. I keep all my chicks here. They're hatched here. So I'm looking for hatching eggs. I don't know if that's possible to find hatching eggs with some of these breeds that are on that list to bring them into my flock. But are there hatching eggs available or just live chicks? No, there's... So on that website, you'll have the, the breeders list. They have hatching eggs. They have grown stock. They have... uh. And chicks. They have everything. Um, awesome. If you can find somebody local, that's really good. Because uh, they'll they'll be more than happy. If they're like me, they rotate their stock out every so many years. So you may go home that day with a bird that's already laying or a rooster that's already crowing. But if it was like an issue getting hatching eggs in, I'd say go to Livestock Conservancy and do the... Uh, they have a, a Heritage Microgrant Program. And this program provides up to... Oh, I can't remember. I want to say it's $2,500 to bring that breed into your farm, especially if it's very hard to find and you have to have it imported. Um, like getting an import certificate, it's about $250. You can do hatching eggs, you can do live chicks, but the live chicks have, you know, a, uh, they have to sit in the, the port of entry for two to four weeks. We're going to bring up some issues of biosecurity, keeping your flock safe, because there are, I've seen a lot of people lately that are taking their chickens into tractor supply, and it's cute online. Uh, I've made posts, a couple of posts recently on that, and I received a lot of ugliness from it. What? Saying I was an elitist. Yeah, I was an elitist, a snob. So can you, from a professional Chicken breeder, explain to our listeners on the importance of biosecurity within your flock. And can you give us a little bit of information on how these diseases are spread throughout your flock? Yes. So um, anytime you take your chicken off your property um, or you bring a new chicken onto the property, you need to have at least a 14-day quarantine or you void out the safety of your whole flock. And that's something I'm very big on because, um, you know, back when I was a new chicken keeper, I had mycoplasma galiseptum make its rounds. I didn't know how it got in there. I didn't know what it was. And after everything was said and done, it's traumatizing when you lose, you lose your whole flock. Um, there's no saving. Some of these diseases, they're so easily transmissible and they are so deadly. Your birds are there one day and then they're gone the next. And 
if you have pet birds, say goodbye to your pets because it's bad. Biosecurity is your number one protection, not only for your birds, but for, you know, wild birds who fly around, for migratory birds. Um, Because if your flock has something, especially like avian flu, Newcastle disease, there was just an outbreak in California not that long ago. And I mean, it spread so in such a wide area because one, you had breeders still shipping chickens out from that area. Um, You still had people shipping eggs out from that area. And you had wild birds, they would visit one backyard flock. And then, you know, hey, they know some feeds over here. They're going to go to this other backyard flock. They're going to drop a little pile of poop. Your chicken's going to peck at it, thinking it's something to eat. And now your whole flock is infected. One bird, one bird, that's all it takes. One little pile of poop, that's all it takes. And a lot of people are like, well, what if I free range? Don't invite birds to your property. If you do invite birds, make sure it is so far away from where your chickens normally free range and roam. And that is, it's it's so important. And that's like, I'm sure you probably saw the video about the birdhouses on the chicken coop. Yes, I nearly died. Oh my Lord. Like that is so scary to me because it doesn't matter how small the bird is. It doesn't matter what kind of bird it is. It still has the possibility of carrying avian influenza, Merix, fowl pox, uh, Newcastle, any of those diseases it can carry. But that's not the only reason why it's so important to have your biosecurity. Your biosecurity is there not to only protect your birds, but to protect the local wildlife population. Because if those birds get it, it's not just the wild birds that you're hurting. You're hurting Canadian geese. I don't know their scientific name right off the bat, but... Uh, You're hurting owls, you're hurting hawks, you're hurting sparrows, you're hurting fledgings, you're hurting all kinds of wildlife population because it's a domino effect. Once one of those birds gets sick, if a predator comes, like we all know, hawks are very predatory on small birds. Well, now if they have avian influenza, you just passed it to a hawk. You've just killed that hawk. You've just killed that owl. So there's equal ecological factors that we have to worry about keeping backyard flocks as well. Whew, that was a lot. But now biosecurity, kind of how I handle the biosecurity, like when people come in off the farm or come into my farm, I've got a shoe dip. And it's basically just a little, uh, it's like a little pan I got at the dollar store. You fill it with bleach or like Hibiclens. Yeah, people dip their shoes in it. And you can get like a little scrubby rug from the dollar store and place it down in there. That netting, netting's a big thing. Uh, Especially if you use like dog kennels. I use dog kennels right now as my temporary pins. Mm -hmm. Netting has been my best friend. (laughs) But keeping those bird feeders away from around your chickens, keeping bird houses away from around your chickens, that's biosecurity is step number one to keeping everything healthy. I bring this up because a guest of... Uh, previous guest she was a new chicken keeper and uh, she was so excited she set up and she raised them up and she thought oh I'm gonna add some more kind of see what I can find well they went to a local auction house oh yeah she didn't know but she had found some she brought them home Uh, she quarantined them you know a few days and they looked fine and everything and it wiped out her whole Flock. Oh, it that's wiped so out bad. her existing flock. That was a lesson learned. 
That leads to my next question. Where would you point someone for guidelines? Would you go to the USDA guidelines? Would you go to like uh, MerrickVet.com? There's lots of resources, but where would you send them to get the information so that they can start implementing even small? I know on the USDA, it's a lot. There's like a big PDF that a lot of it has to do with industrial and things, but I think you can apply a lot of those things into your average backyard flock. The USDA and the CDC, because like the CDC goes over salmonella, which is another thing that wild birds carry. Um, They go over salmonella testing. You can always call your state vet if, you know, if you have birds dying at a very accelerated rate, you could always call your state vet and they can do a necropsy for free because they want to make sure that you're not you don't have Newcastle, you don't have avian influenza, you don't have an outbreak of some kind that could affect the whole state. But yeah, USDA, the PDF, I, that's what I looked at. That's what I used. Um, and as new chicken owners, I think everybody goes through, hey, I didn't quarantine, I really messed up, I, I've lost everybody. Yeah. I think everybody has that point or they get that respiratory thing and it's just very small respiratory you know, their faces get swollen and then it kind of hits new chicken keepers. And it's like, oh, my God, I've got something like we need to to buffer down on biosecurity. Yeah, we've been pretty blessed here. Uh, I was very weird about, you know, people coming in our yards, even like when people would come and want to buy eggs or whatever. And I'm like, I would make sure all of that is set up way at the front of my property and not yeah. back where the coops are. We have I've lost a few a few to predators because I do. I do free range, but yeah. over the years, the last 10 years, I think I've created some amazing chickens because they are very high alert for predators yep. and they seem to forage very well. But going back to the poultry conservation and the genetic diversity, which of the birds on the conservation list would you recommend for your average backyard chicken keeper or their favorites of yours that you would like? Buckeyes. Like, if you're not going to butcher or if you're just using for, like, eggs, um, the standard side Polish, they're they're some of my favorite, but they're not predator savvy at all. So I would not recommend free-ranging those. But, like, with genetic... No, I had one. Yeah, they are... Bless their hearts. I had one and he he was not very smart. Yes. He ended up getting picked off pretty fast. Yeah, and I've had them, and it's just like, oh, you're so pretty. I'll I'll have to show you this because this is the one I lost. My friend, that was the Polish oh. I lost, and my friend uh, painted that for me. But bless their hearts, they are not predator savvy, but that's part of the genetic genetic conservation aspect. Because you have some of those breeds, they have great mothering instincts. You have other breeds who have great foraging. Uh, you have other breeds who are disease hardy. That's one of the big things that's not bred into hatchery chickens, because uh, they're not looking they're not looking for those mothering instincts. They're not looking for forageability. They're not looking for, you know, how the roosters treat the hens. Their aggressiveness, temperament. They're not looking at any of that because it's a quantity over quality issue. But where you have these littler programs, you have people, well, like Seabrights. Take Seabrights, for example. Brood their chicks at all. So that is something that I am trying to breed into my Seabrights so they don't go extinct. Now, forageability, they're great. Disease resistance is not so great. But now, like, your Buckeyes, all over, they're a great breed. They're worm-resistant. They're disease-resistant. They make a good-dressed bird. They lay, I think, up to 250 eggs a year. Um, They have good broodiness. Like, the mothers go broody. They'll hatch your chicks. They're excellent mothers. 
I mean, that's like, let's take Silkies, for example. How many people brag about the docile temperament, the mothering instincts of the Silkie? But now, they're, they're predator savviness. They're not predator savvy either. Your Buckeyes, um, they're pretty predator savvy. Like, I've seen Buckeye roosters take on hawks, and they win all day. Rhode Island, the Heritage Rhode Island, I'm sure everybody's seen that video of the Rhode Island red hen fighting off a hawk. Yes. It just, it, it kind of comes down to what people are breeding into the birds in these separate breeding programs. Um, Buckeyes are my favorite, if you can't tell. I wish I had Buckeyes again. The Spangled... I kind of want some now. Oh, I love them. They're so pretty. Uh, The Spangled Hamburgs, those are good beginner birds. The Heritage Rhode Island Red. The hatchery quality, you know, they've lost those real deep red feathers. A lot of their forageability they've lost. They're very human dependent. Brahmas are really good birds. Yeah, and like ducks. Anconas, honestly, are probably my favorite duck. But... The Cayuga, they're more uh, threatened conservation status, so I work with them. That and they lay black eggs, so I thought that was really cool. Yeah. Every breed has a certain aspect that you can tap into to work positively in your favor as a farmer. And you just add to it through your generations. I love that. I love those tips. You know, every season, it's just, it's an addiction. You can't help it. Those little chirp chirps. Although my, my hens sit all year long. Yeah. They hatch out um, chicks during the winter. But so instead of, you know, going online to all the hatcheries um, and making all your purchases, you could go here to the Livestock Conservancy and try and go through that list and pick some of those and diversify your flock that way. I want to hear your top three tips for chicken keepers. You know, it's chick season. We all know it. They're everywhere to share with our listeners to help them implement that into their flock, something that is doable. For new chicken keepers? Yeah. Research, research, research. And before you get your chicks home, make sure your brooder is set up. And once you get those chicks home, the next day start building your coop and make it a very big coop because chicken math is a very real thing and it will sneak up and just bite you. Hallelujah. Praise. Yeah. Yes, it is. And always go local. Like, I'm, I think we've all seen what's happening with the tractor supply brooders this year. Um, and it has not been pretty at all. Yeah. I, I feel the shipping distress, the stuff that those chicks go through in the very fir- first few hours of life. I'm not a big fan of it, uh, myself. So always try to go local. Yeah. Go local if you can. And you know, Get a few extra roosters. It's it's good protection for the flock. Roosters are not always a bad thing unless you live in like an HOA or somewhere that doesn't allow it. Yeah, I absolutely love my roosters. I brag on them all the time. Mr. Jangles is... I like Mr. Jangles. He's like the perfect man. If he was a real man, I would marry him. <laughs> That's how Modi is. Like if Modi, if Modi was a person, I would marry Modi, hands down. Yes. Sweet yes. boys. They're very sweet boys. And I mean... And everyone talks about the ratios. Of course, you need to keep your ratios. Uh, three hens to one rooster, I think, is the ideal. But I've had trios. I've had two hens to a rooster. It just depends on the temperament of the rooster. There are some you can do a pair. That's like my Millie Fleurs. Like my Millie Fleur rooster, he hangs out with his one hen, and he is so attending to her. He attends to her all the time. He brings her little treats. If she's nesting, he digs out her little nest for her. 
Um, and Seabrights are kind of the same way. They can have one partner and they just stay with that one partner. But yeah, roosters, too many roosters is not a bad thing unless they're overbreeding your hens. It's going to provide you an extra layer of protection. Um, and once they get their pecking order established, you know, a lot of them are very chill birds. Yes, Mr. Jangles, I have Mr. Jangles and I have his son um, because I do have, uh, like you said, I do have a pair of that breed. So yeah. Mr. Jangles, Tuck is Mr. Jangles mini-me. And Mr. Tuck knows that Mr. Jangles is in charge. So yep. he doesn't mess with him. And Mr. Jangles is so laid back. He doesn't fight. Like he raises baby chicks. And it makes brings tears to my eyes because I don't want him to go away. Mm-hmm. But I'm having a hard time finding his breed anymore. But do you think there are things that you would have done differently when you started this progression? You know, are there things that you look back now um, through your career or your through your farm, things that you could have done differently, things, mistakes, you know, that you could that you have since learned from? Could you share some of that with us? Yeah, so I would have had a biosecurity plan in place when I first started this. Um, And I would have had like. One big issue we had was we had our barn burn and I lost everybody but like five birds. Oh, wow. Yeah, we didn't have like an emergency plan of action. Now I do, uh, but we didn't have an emergency plan in that situation. And I would just say always have a backup coop just or somewhere you can go with your birds. Um, Even though ours was a fire, you know, some people are prone to tornadoes. Some people are prone to... Uh, hurricanes just always have an emergency plan in place just in case you have to take off very quickly and you want to take your birds with you i know some people in florida they just open their coops and if their birds make it they make it uh but i've also seen videos where people tied their birds up in newspapers and took them out of the the path of the hurricane uh so just having an emergency plan uh in place and uh, like preemptive care, uh, like feeding pumpkin seeds or pumpkin, uh, dusting every six months, or regardless if you have mites or not, um, just staying on top of the medical aspect of keeping your birds healthy. The first few years, I didn't do that because I didn't know what a scaly leg mite was. I didn't know what chicken lice was. Um, and I didn't deal with it until it happened. Um, so yeah, just that goes back to research. Just keep that research going. There's always something new to learn about chickens. That was going to be my next question is like, where would you point someone for that type of research? You know, basic chicken care. Obviously we can't control everything. We can't prevent every virus, you know, every disease that comes into our flock. I know with Merrick's, a lot of people have Merrick's. A lot of times they don't know where it's from. You know, yep. they've never had a bird with Merricks. But, you know, that property they're on, they may have had Merricks many years ago. Yeah. You know, a bird may have brought it in. Lots of things. So I don't want anyone to feel like just because your bird gets sick that you didn't do. What you, you know, yeah. We, we all can have that happen within our fox and no foul on, no foul on our part. <laughs> but. <laughs> Good pun. <laughs> No, oh, thank you. <laughs> I like my chicken buns. So where would you point someone for, let's say, you know, poultry gurus of information for basic chicken care? Would you go to your, obviously you're going to go to your veterinarian, but a lot of people, 
through this podcast, I have learned they, they don't have access to a veterinarian. They just don't. Even a local veterinarian, they don't see chickens. They say, uh, I don't see chickens. I don't want nothing to do with it. Yeah. So where would you point them? So we have to take that into our own hands and say, okay, just because I can't find a vet, I'm still going to take care of my ki- my um, chickens. Like that Merck vet uh, you had mentioned earlier, that's a very good website. Um, there's also... I love that website. Yes, I love it too. I use it anytime, like, even if, you know, they get a little spot on their comb, I'm like, what is this? Mm-hmm. But that's what... Is this foul pox? Yeah, is this foul pox? But there's also, Amazon has a book, and it's actually pretty expensive. I've actually got to go and look at the name. But it's a veterinarian book, um, and it walks you through how to do everything for your chickens um, in, like, a veterinarian setting. And I'm actually trying to... Really? Yes. I haven't ordered it yet because it's so expensive. Yeah, well, there's no avian vets out there. Like, they are very few and far between. Like, me and my vet, like, the only reason he knows, like, if he has a chicken question, he sometimes calls and asks me because I've got the book for it. (laughs) But, like, deworming chickens, that's always a big question. Um, Backyard poultry medicine and surgery, a guide for veterinarian practitioners. And it's by Cheryl Greenacre and Teresa Morishita. I hope I said that correctly. Awesome. I'm going to look that up. I ordered a bunch of um, medical kits. Yep. Things like that to have on hand. Special types of scissors and tweezers and things that would be beneficial. I do have an avian vet. Oh, lucky lady. But she is pretty far away. Yeah. Yeah, She she's an awesome lady. And she, me and Marissa live in the same yeah. state. We don't live very far away, but... I'll probably have to get her info from you. Yeah, yeah, I'd be glad to. She's in Greenville, actually, Greenville, Tennessee. So Okay, awesome. I can't wait to come see you. Yes, definitely, definitely. I'm, so through May, I am pretty much, it's chicken show season. Let's put it that way. It is chicken show season. Yeah, Tennessee Valley Poultry Club, they're about to start taking off. Um, and the honey flow is about to start. So after all that, we'll be good. We'll be good. Like, right there in the hottest part of summer. (laughs) Yeah, because I plan on coming up to see Marissa. I, well, Miss Coco always starts to sit in the end of this month, in the first of April. She's like clockwork. Every year, she, she goes to sitting. So nothing but hatching eggs, except for maybe like way back in my flock. That's when I got some older hens and then some little baby chicks. So, but I don't do that anymore. I just do hatching eggs. I feel it's safer for us. Yep. And uh, that's just what we've always done. No live chicks. I don't want to take any chances. I need to find local hatcheries that have hatching eggs. So once Marissa is all done with all her um, stuff and uh, her wild adventures in the poultry shows, maybe I can get some hatching eggs and come up and see her and buy some hatching eggs from her. Yeah. Yeah. That'd be great. But in the meantime, before that, I am going to go on that list and I'm going to see the website and see if I can find um, some hatching eggs through that. I can't even speak anymore. <laughs> Conservation. Yeah, 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 yeah. Moving right along. It's awful. It's like I got the itchies. It's like I got some kind of disease or something. Yeah, in the back. Gosh, and got any more damn chicks? <laughs> <laughs> I need some chickens. <laughs> I need some chickens, please. 
Oh, goodness. Okay, what do you feel the chicken community is lacking? What, what do you see from your experience and your expertise looking out around you? Youth. That's just the first thing that pops into my mind is youth. There's not a lot of youth participating anymore. Why do you think that? Grocery stores and hatcheries. Because they've really knocked out that... Because you know how like you used to have like the seed stores. Like your, your family would pass down the seeds from generation to generation. They do that with the chickens too. And now that's non-existent. There's a lot of youth, I guess, that's not interested in chicken keeping because they don't really have to. Like you said, they just go through the drive-thru or they go to the grocery store and it's not dependent on food. Yeah, and that means a disconnect with our food now. So especially in like more urban areas, food deserts where, you know, it could be very easy to raise quail and chickens in the backyard. Now they don't do that. What is one common myth about chicken keeping you'd like to debunk? That chickens are hard to take care of. Yeah, they are the easiest animals. If you, if you can own a puppy, chickens are about 25% of the energy of owning a puppy. So that means everyone should have chickens. Mm-hmm. I feel like there should be no laws against having chickens at all. And at one point in time, you know, it was, I think it was during World War II, people were, you know... It was a thing to have chickens. It was a very big popular thing to have chickens in the backyard to get your eggs and your meat from. You were, you know, a a type of medium income family back in the day if you had chickens in the backyard. Yeah, you were more upper class if you had backyard chickens. Yep. Yeah. And now, you know, (laughs) if you're in a HOA, you're just a nuisance neighbor, (laughs) apparently. Yes, that's so true. I didn't really think about that. I guess in the luxury of, you know, where I live and where you live, you know, if I wanted 100 chickens out here, which I'm pretty close to, but if I wanted 100 chickens, I could get 100 chickens, you know, if I can feed them and take care of them. Yeah. But you're so right. There's so many laws and rules and way back, you know, that wasn't the case. And that is sad. And that is why the importance of it, not just for show and not just for companionship, which they are all those things, but the importance of being sustainable within your own family. Can you talk a little bit about that? I know that you're very passionate about that. Yeah. Um, So being sustainable, uh, you're basically, whatever you take from the earth, you're putting it back into the earth. So that's lowering your carbon footprint. That's helping the land. You're leaving the land better than when you got the land. Uh, You're going to come off with less soil erosion. You're going to come off with more fertile area to work. Um, And it's just working with the nature around you. You're fitting your farm to fit the nature around you. You're not making your farm stand out against it to fight nature. We're not here to fight nature. And that's something that industrial agriculture does. You have to have buffers. You have to have all this crap um, just to keep the the agriculture from poisoning the land and the local water systems. And I, that's something that a lot of people don't understand is all these soybeans. It doesn't just translate to meat eaters either. Um, these soybeans, this corn, all of this killing the rainforest right now. It's uh, palm oil. They're, they're totally destroying the rainforest right now for palm oil. And that's because people are using all of this stuff. It's not a sustainable program. It's going to end up the the economic 
and the infrastructure is going to crash one day. And when that crashes, people aren't going to be able to feed themselves. Um, and it's only a matter of time before that happens because the system has not been sustainable for a very long time. Veganism, car carnivores, like it's, it, they're not sustainable programs. Whereas way back in the day, you know, when you had a family cow for milk, when you had a backyard flock, when you had geese and ducks for meat, when you had all those animals, you only had what you needed. You knew what was going into that animal's body. I'm sure everybody, you know, what comes to mind, Monsanto, look at what Monsanto has done. You had what you needed and that in turn made your carbon, your carbon footprint so small, so small. But now look at the food waste that we produce. Look, look at the statistical food waste that the United States puts out there, whereas Africa can't even grow enough to feed a village. Like, yeah, it's mind-blowing. It is mind-blowing, and it is so sad to watch because methane, your food waste produces methane. I mean, that is what's bubbling up, and that is what's helping drive your emissions up. Everybody's like, oh, no, it's agriculture. If you look... It's transportation is the number one thing. Now, agriculture, yeah, it does come in at a close second, but it is not the main cause of emissions like so many people told everybody a few years back. Cow farts are not going to kill the planet. Right here, you heard it from Marissa. <laughs> Cow farts are not going to kill this planet. No, it's going to be the people. An exclusive interview. Yeah, it's going to be these people yes. who are not living sustainably. They're draining the earth. Look at all the manure you have to put on an industrial... Look at the Dust Bowl. Did we not learn anything from the Dust Bowl? Apparently not. Because history's just repeating itself. I think a lot of people don't think of that. They're, the industrial side forced them as we have to apply all the rules to the food, you know, and what, how you can treat it. And I mean treat it as in like fertilizer and things like that. So there's so many rules and you're creating something that is not natural. No, it's not natural. And that's what I don't think a lot of people don't get is it takes food a while to grow. Corn sprouting up and being ready to harvest in a month is not natural. And think of all the all the stuff you're taking out of the earth. Like, that's why I'm not a, a believer in Cornish Cross because it takes, what, six to eight weeks for the bird to be full slaughter. Yeah. And if you keep them after that, their legs snap. That's not natural. Yes, it's awful. Yeah, that's not natural. That's not good. I mean, I've never kept meat birds. I don't really want meat birds. We have extra roosters. They do grow slower, but you can use them for meat. It, you know it's got to be painful for them to grow that quick. You know, I mean... I don't know how many people have growing pains, but you're just growing, you know, very little bit and your legs are on fire. But Lord help, them birds grow so quick and so fast. So that is another good point to bring up when people say, well, I don't want to buy, you know, I want my chicken sexed or whatever. And a lot of people have to have them sexed because they live in the city and they can't have roosters. But if you have that opportunity uh, to live in the country, you could and you could grow out as many as possible, and you could use the extra roosters and things for sustainability to feed your family or your neighbor's family or whatever. So yeah, those are very th those are things that you can implement within your own flock. Yep. And I know not everyone wants to, you know, 
do the deed and, you know, slaughter their animals. But these same people go to the grocery store and buy meat. So, yeah, it gets me thinking, too. Yep. And see, like, when people say, like, I can't believe you slaughter your own meat. Well, you know, you see the commercials where the chickens are out in the the good, lush, green grass. As a chicken keeper, we all know there ain't going to be grass around chickens. Wherever they stay, all that grass is going to be plucked out. So you know they're only out there for the commercial. Um, And you know those chickens, you know the quality of life they have. Those chickens you get from the grocery store, they're in pens. They're probably in pens about the size of a shoebox. They can't even stand up all the way. And you're just supporting that industry. They call them battery cages. Um, the birds don't have a natural life. They don't have a good life in there. I don't agree with it. That's why, you know, I wanted to do it my way, you know, free range, let them have as natural life as possible. You know what goes into their body. You know if they've had antibiotics or not. You know, because you raised them. You've seen the whole process from chick to plate. And those birds at the grocery store... I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but they did not have a good life. They probably never saw sunlight a day in their life. And labels, if they're not regulated by the USDA, anybody can slap a pasture-raised chicken label on a package of meat, and you're not actually buying a pasture-raised chicken. You're buying one that had, you know, maybe an extra square foot in a poultry barn. I've given away a lot of roosters for to others, you know, for meat purposes, you know. Oh, that's also true. I don't know. Obviously, I know that, but hearing it, and hopefully our listeners will, when they hear this too, they will realize that it's not cruel. You know, buying that product from the grocery store, so much more cruel than you going and doing it yourself. Processing your own. Yeah. And that's what... That's what a lot of people don't understand, too. And I I did an article on this as well, um, confusing poultry labels. Like, a lot of those labels, they aren't USD regulated. And I think that's something that needs to change as well. Because, you know, you do have your organic label. You do have uh, a few different labels with the USDA. But that's like antibiotic-free chicken. That is a false label in its entirety. Now, chickens will be given antibiotics when they're chicks, but unless there's like a big sickness that comes through, no one's going to give their chickens antibiotics, especially in a poultry barn. And there's a withholding for antibiotics, so it just, it makes no sense to me. It makes no sense to me. Why slap a antibiotic-free label on it, just like with milk? Antibiotic-free milk. There was never milk with antibiotics in it. So it's just, there's a lot of falsity in the labeling business. I could go out today and say 100% pasture-raised chicken, slap it on the outside, USDA doesn't have to come check it out, or, you know, 100% organic Indonesian meat, because I have Indonesian Samanis. I mean, I didn't even have to import it. I could just slap that label on it, and it's there. I've got some exotic meat. And you could you could charge as much as you wanted. What are your thoughts on organic meat? I think it's a bunch of crap. <laughs> Excuse me. I think it's a bunch of poop. Um, it's very made up. It's a very made up system. Um, 
even with your organic vegetables, if they're grown in an industrial setting, they still have herbicides sprayed on them. So in all actuality, they're not organic. And organic, you know, they say, if you want organic, go to your local farmer's market, because I guarantee you 100% of the stuff that your local farmer's market is selling is organic. So could you tell us a little bit about those vegetarian eggs that we find at the grocery store? Non-existent. For some reason, they're selling... <laughs> some reason, you have the options of buying vegetarian eggs. I am so confused by that. I'm assuming that the feed that they're giving them has no animal product in it. Is that even possible? So do you... Do we... So knowing a chicken's poultry require... Or protein requirements... How unhealthy do we know that those birds are that are laying those eggs? Because if they're not getting the yeah. protein that they need, like they, you probably got a bunch of bald chickens. Their feathers are probably really suffering. Their bones are probably suffering. And uh, if I bought a package of those eggs, I would probably just like poke them just to make sure. Well, they probably give them calcium. That's probably all they're eating is calcium. Yeah. That's how they're vegetarian eggs. I, I always see that, and it just gives me the creepies because not just because it says vegetarian, but I always think about the bird and what environment that bird, that egg is literally sucking the life out of mm -hmm. them just to produce that egg. It's so sad. Yeah, that is very sad. Don't go for the vegetarian. Don't be. That's ridiculous. I've yeah, never seen those. Never seen those in person. They're like... Seven or eight dollars, too, for a dozen of them. You know that bird is suffering so bad. Oh, that is yeah. so sad. Okay, who would you be, who would be your top pick for your most influential in your life? There's been a lot of people. Um, you know, you make one friend in the chicken world, and it seems like everybody is connected. Probably Brian Lee uh, with Southern Lee Samani. He really kind of mentored me. But now in a honeybee aspect there's been donna yarber i consider her my mentor uh but in a personal life you know my kids and my mom so it's 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 just a big mix of a lot of different people i think that's a fabulous answer i think that creates a well-rounded individual thank you thank you very much i think that's an amazing thing and that's why we love you because you have so many personalities i love you guys too and we can pretty much relate to a lot of them so. <laughs> Yeah, I'm a little crazy. Yeah, us Tennessee people may be a little crazy. I don't know. But let's say someone in the backyard chicken keeping community would like a mentor, you know, someone to help them, teach them. You know, is there programs out there where someone could reach out to someone and maybe someone come alongside them? The APA, the American Poultry Association, um, they can put you in contact with a lot of good people. Uh, Breed clubs, if you're looking at certain breeds, um, they can put you in contact with a lot of good people. That's how I met Brian was through the Aom Samani Breeders Association. And it was, you know, brand spanking new. Um, and Julie, that's how I met Julie Incott was through the Aom Samani Association. Finding local chicken keepers or going to your local poultry shows. You can find a mentor very easily there. Um, I try to keep an open line. You know, life gets busy, it gets hectic, but I try to keep an open line with everybody. Um, if anybody ever has a question, they are more than welcome to reach out, and I will establish an open line of communication with them. Now, I'll keep doing that till I get overwhelmed. Last week, it was a little rough because there was 
about eight people who reached out and it was like, oh, I got to message him back. I got to find that out for him and message him back. But uh, it, it keeps me on my toes. So, but yeah, if anybody ever has a question about, you know, the breeds I specify in, uh, they can reach out, reach out to me, uh, find a club, reach out to them, reach out to a breeder on the Livestock Conservancy. Like hatcheries, a lot of hatcheries won't share their secrets now, but your local poultry people, your poultry fanciers, they're going to tell you everything because they want to keep the standard of that breed. They want to make that breed better for future generations to have it. That is leads into my next question. If you're looking to go to a local breeder, let's say you find a local breeder, what are some things that you should look for would indicate that this breeder is, you know, up to standard or up? What are some things that would make you feel comfortable going to a local breeder? I would first look for an MPIP program. Um, you do have a lot of local pro- local breeders who won't do that program just because they're not shipping. So that's not like a be-all to end-all. Um, but you want to kind of look at the the structure of their cages, the condition of their birds. Are the cages clean? Uh, are the birds active? Um, do they look like they're healthy? Uh, if you come up on a bird and that bird, you know, we all go through molt season, but if they're in a cage and they've just, they kind of, I don't know how to describe it. You know, they hunch down. They kind of mm-hmm. just kind of come into each other. If you come up on a breeder and a lot of their birds are doing that, I do not recommend purchasing from that person. And they could just be taking a nap or, you know, the birds could be sick. You want to look for little bubbles in the eye. Um, and before you leave that property with those birds, you want to do an all over inspection. Not if it's adult grown birds, you want to look at the legs. You want to look for mites. You want to look at the skin. Uh, you want to look at the nose and the mouth. Make sure, you know, there's no, nothing that will tell you that they're sick. If they're sick, don't be scared to tell that person, hey, I'm not getting this bird. And with like your chicks, if you go to the brooder and the brooder is really disgusting, it looks like it hasn't been cleaned in a few weeks. I, I think that answers the question. Yeah. Now, ducks, ducks can ruin a brooder in about two days, but you can tell when it's been about two days for ducks versus a week for ducks. Uh, but if those brooders are really nasty and the smell, the smell will be your first clue. If that smell hits you, smacks you in the face, one, they're not cleaning correctly. Two, that is a playground for bacteria and diseases to spread. That's something you always have to keep in mind. Do you have anything you would like for our listeners to know? Is there any a question you'd like me to ask you so that our listeners would know? Just make sure your birds have a good dust bath. That's going to be one of your best, best friends is a dust bath. What are your top five things that you would have on hand right now as a chicken keeper arsenal? VetRx, Blue Coat, Veterinarian Coban, Corid, and Probiotics and Electrolytes. I really like Nutrigent. I find that I use that quite a bit when, you know, yeah. they're kind of looking yeah. not well, but that seems to perk them up pretty good. Oh, yeah, definitely. I have a few questions at the end here I want to ask you. They are just for fun. I want to know if you could put anything on a billboard, what would it be and why? It would be a Chick-fil-A remake billboard. Instead of eat more chicken, it would be own more chickens. Um, Because I think it is, I'm very passionate about people having at least a backyard flock. 
Um, I think everybody should own chickens. That is super cute. You should make a t-shirt. You have to make a t-shirt with that on it. Yeah. What is your favorite room in your house and why? Oh, it's my grow out room. (laughs) And it's because all the grow outs are in there. Grumpy. And they're getting to that age now where they want to follow you around and eat out of your hands and fly up on your shoulders and stuff. It's just fun being in there right now. Yeah. They're almost to the point where they can go outside. Uh, But they're just they're just in that fun phase right now. And the last question is, if you could go back and be 18 again, what would you tell yourself, knowing what you know now? Go ahead and start the chicken business. Don't wait until you're 23. If, if I could go back and redo it, I would have started it earlier because um, I lived in a subdivision, and that's really what why I was apprehensive about it. Um, our neighbor had a backyard garden. I had a garden, um, but... I always wanted chickens, and that's the thing I kick myself the most for is just not going ahead and getting my chickens. But look at you now. I know. You're kind of known as the chicken queen. We we yeah. all think of, we were, di- we were kind of discussing you the other day, me and my friend, and I was telling her about you coming on my podcast and how excited I was and how nervous I was and how I had all these amazing questions, and I just wanted to pick your brain and stuff, and... Uh, She's like, well, let me see, let me see her profile and stuff. So I sent her, I sent all your information over to her and she's like, oh yeah, I love her. Well, if y'all want to come on down, you just come on down and see me. You hear? I'll make cookies. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I'll bring some Dr. Enough and uh, we can have some snacks together and stuff. Yeah, we'll go socialize the ducks. Go down there and sit and hang with the ducks. I want ducks. I don't have any ducks. <gasps> I'm afraid. I'm afraid of them making a gigantic mess. And uh, that's all I hear is they're so messy. They are messy. You just let me know. I'll hook you up with some ducklings. I've got, I've never had like an incubation go this good. I've got about 53 eggs downstairs. They're all ducks. I was not expecting them to, to all develop. They're all developing. So yeah, you want some ducklings? You let me know. You just let me know. We are so grateful and honored that you agreed to be with us. Thank you. And uh, this may be part of her community (laughs) service. I don't know. But either way, we are so grateful (laughs) and so thankful. (laughs) But thanks, Marissa. We are so grateful for you. Thank you so much for having me and for this opportunity. And if you ever need anything, just reach out. That's it, y'all. Thanks for listening. If you found value in this episode, we would appreciate it if you would share this with a friend and leave us a review. Till next time. Bye-bye, y'all. I'm Mel, and you are listening to Wilma the Wonder Hen. 